So we've come as far as Mark chapter 11, a very uh, pivotal part of not just Mark's gospel, but John's account, Matthew's account, and Luke's account. They all record the details uh, that we're going to start to see uh, unfolding in this chapter. It's a hugely important part for so many reasons as we'll go through uh, this morning. Let's just uh, bow our hearts, so just commit this time of study to the Lord, shall we? Father, we do ask for your blessing as we read your word. Father, we don't want to read with natural eyes. Lord, we want to see things spiritually. And Father, your word tells us that, Lord, the natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God, nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Father, we pray, Lord, as your servants here this morning, as those that have your spirit dwelling within them, that you would give us that sight to see and stir our hearts. Father, help us to see the importance of these things, Lord, to encourage us, but Lord, also that we can use these things in our conversations with others. Um, Lord, just speak to us, we pray. We ask it now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I don't think I'll ever get tired of uh, covering this portion of Scripture. And this is the first time, actually, I've done it using Mark's Gospel. Um, so it's kind of nice, slightly different um, take on it. Of course, we get Mark's or Peter's perception of these things. Um, and we start in chapter 11, verse 1. And when they came nigh to Jerusalem, now just, just pause there for a second, because this is the journey. This is what now for the last um, six months or so, Jesus has been working towards. Way back up in Caesarea Philippi, as you remember, Jesus had made that statement to the disciples that he was coming to Jerusalem and he was going to die. He was going to be put to death. Three days later, he was going to rise from the dead. The disciples don't quite get it. They're not sure whether it's an allegory. They don't know whether it's, what does it mean? How many times Jesus says this, we don't know, but quite a lot. Uh, And they still don't quite understand the reason that Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. Um, Now, Mark doesn't record the other occasions that Jesus had come to Jerusalem through his ministry. Um, but wherever Jesus could, particularly for the, for the feasts, Jesus would come down to Jerusalem. So he was no stranger to Jerusalem, but this time it was different. This time it was to fulfill prophecy. This time it was to do everything that he had come to do, to become a sacrifice, to become that Passover lamb in the place of those who will put their trust in him. So this is a really big event in that sense. And for the last six months, we've been working down from Caesarea Philippi, went up to the top of Mount Hermon, the Transfiguration, and from that moment coming all the way back down through Galilee and into the area of Judea, uh, and then coming up the road from Jericho last week we saw with Bartimaeus, and now finally Jesus gets to Jerusalem. And we're told on to Bethpage and Bethany, just outside very, very short journey over the, the top uh, of the, uh, the Mount of Olives there. It says, the Mount of Olives, he sendeth forth two of his disciples. I'm told which two they are, but two of them go off. And he said unto them, go your way into the village over against you. And as soon as you be entered into it, you shall find a colt tied whereon never man set. Loose him and bring him. Now, this is some sort of untrained donkey, a donkey that's not used to having people sat on its back. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen donkeys that are like this, but I, I had the opportunity going out to Israel some years ago, and you kind of see donkeys every now and again, wild donkeys, and you can tell they're wild. You don't really want to get that, that close. This isn't kind of like new forest ponies that you can get quite close and stroke them. These are donkeys that are quite wild sometimes. Um, 
And it's interesting, and it was actually, I was reading in the, one of the commentaries by Charles Finistake, and he was saying, here we have a donkey, a wild animal, that learns instantly to be obedient to the Messiah, when the people that he was coming to see and to speak to and to present himself before rejected him. The ones that should have been humble um, were the ones that were hard. And the one that you'd expect to be hard, i.e. the donkey here, uh, is the one that willingly yields to Jesus. Uh, kind, of a, kind of an interesting reversal there. So these two disciples go off on this, this journey that they've been sent on by Jesus. He says, and if any man say unto you, Jesus said to them, if any man say unto you, why do you this? I mean, who, I don't know whose donkey this was, but if anyone says, you know, what are you saying? Say ye that the Lord has need of him, and he straight away will send him hither. And they went their way and found the colt tied by the door without in a place where the two ways met, and they loose him. Interesting, isn't it? Just the little details that we have. I mean, people try and tell us that this is fabricated, that it's man's work. But why would you have that information? And they went by the way and they found the colt tied by the door without in a place where the two ways met. I mean, just unimportant information in a sense but it's there. It's recorded. Why? Because this is a factual account. Never lose sight of that. That when we look at in Scripture, these, these aren't stories. I don't like the term Bible story. They're, they're accounts of things that really took place. And so they loose this donkey and they bring this donkey back. And we read, And some of them that stood there said unto them, What do ye, loosing the colt? And so, as Jesus had said to them to say, they said unto them, Even as Jesus had commanded, and they let them go. So, for whatever reason, the hearts of these individuals that question the disciples suddenly are softened and they go, yeah, no problem. And they brought the cult to Jesus and cast their garments on him. And he sat upon him. And many spread their garments in the way. And others cut down branches off the trees and strewed them in the way. Now, of course, we're familiar with this. This is what we refer to as Palm Sunday. It seems to be from history one of the very few dates that we get right. It was actually a Sunday that this, this event actually occurred, the first day of the week. And you can track the details through as we'll start to do as we go through this week. So they place their, their garments on the back of this donkey to make it more comfortable for Jesus. And Jesus sits on the donkey. But why a donkey in the first place? Well, throughout Scripture, there's various examples of this. We see it with, with Solomon. When Solomon becomes king, we see him coming in, riding on a donkey. Why? Because it symbolized peace. If you come on some great big wholesome stallion or whatever, that's the kind of sign that would be if a king was coming to conquer. But when Solomon became king, there were a few issues, of course, but it was a peaceful transition from David to Solomon. Jesus is coming here because he's coming to bring peace. And so he comes on a donkey. When Jesus comes at the second coming, he'll be coming on a horse, a great white horse, because he's coming to conquer and to set up his kingdom. There's a very distinct reason why the donkey was chosen. And they that went before and they followed cried, saying, Hosanna, save now. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Quoting from Psalms. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David that cometh in the name of the Lord. 
Hosanna in the highest. You see, there were those there that recognized, just as Bartimaeus had done, just a few days or even a day or two earlier than this, that this was the son of David. Jesus was coming to claim his throne. At least that's what the people thought. That's what they understood was happening. To reestablish the throne of David. Now, of course, we find that even the disciples themselves get confused about this. And after the resurrection, and we have this recorded in the beginning of the book of Acts, the disciples asked Jesus, so will you now at this time, this is after the resurrection, will you now restore the kingdom? And Jesus effectively says, not yet. Not yet the time. That time's coming. That will occur when Jesus comes back at the second coming. He will establish the throne of David again. Blessed be the kingdom of our father David. That's what they're talking about, the throne of David. This royal line that was to be without end. But nevertheless, they're worshipping. Of course, in Luke's account, we find that the, uh, the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and so on, just object bitterly to what's being said. They don't want the people crying out and worshipping Jesus. They recognize what they're saying. Jesus makes that comment that if these were silent, even the very rocks would cry out. Just want to backtrack just a little bit because you'll see where we're going in a moment. But we're going to start to get into some of the most incredible territory in the Gospel of Mark. All of the, the miracles we've seen have been to tell us who Jesus is. Let's just, just go through some of them, just to remind yourselves. Chapter 1, there was that healing of the demoniac in the synagogue. And then, of course, Peter's mother-in-law had a fever and she's healed. And then we find that there were the sick and the possessed at Capernaum that came at night to the house. I don't know how late they stay, but for a long time. And then we find the demon possessed in the area of Galilee. And then the leper that was healed and sent to the priest. That would have caused a stir. We said that at the time. Never had there been a leper healed in Israel to this point. So those in Jerusalem are suddenly now starting to ask, who is this? Because no leper ever, by any of the prophets or any other means, had ever been healed. And this leper now is healed and he's sent to the priest to offer the appropriate sacrifice according to the law. And, and no doubt in Jerusalem when this leper arrived to offer the sacrifice, the priest had to revert to the Torah to go and see what they were supposed to do. It never happened. In the second chapter we see that paralytic lowered through the roof. Mark recording all of this because he wants you and I and all those who are going to read his gospel, his account, to realize who Jesus is. Jesus wasn't just some ordinary individual. He wasn't even just a prophet. It's the first mention here as well that Jesus can forgive sins. So Mark has been building this all the way through. In the third chapter, we get the man with the withered hand in the synagogue. Do you remember in front of all the Jewish leadership that were there, that were sitting on watching, wondering what was going to happen on the Sabbath day? And Jesus just calls this man forward. And suddenly his withered hand is made whole. Of course, that led to the plots against Jesus starting to be hatched. And then we see this multitude healed by Galilee, unclean spirits cast out. The disciples then endued with his power and set out in ministry themselves. And of course the scribes then charge this power, this authority, to the power of demons or Beelzebub. Jesus rebukes them for this because 
is attributing the power of the Holy Spirit to the power of the devil. And you have that issue of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit brought in at that point. In chapter 4, we see Jesus calming the waves on the Sea of Galilee. In chapter 5, the demonic over the other side of the Sea of Galilee in Gardea is set free. Of course, the pigs, not kosher, <laughs> go swimming at that point. Then we find Jesus, as he returns, on his way to raise a Jewish daughter. He was this woman who seemingly was a Gentile. Interesting that on his way to heal Israel, as it were, the Lord has brought in a multitude of the Gentiles and healed us. Interesting. Both, of course, there's both there's Jairus' daughter, who we'll see in a moment, was 12 years old. This woman had this issue of blood for 12 years. There's definitely a connection there. And so this woman's healed, Jairus' daughter then raised. Yeah, the, the stuff that's going on here is beyond anything that had been seen. And Mark is trying to get across that Jesus really is God. Jesus really is the Messiah. There's only a few Nazareth that were healed because of their lack of faith, but nevertheless some. And then again, the disciples sent out in power, we see, and many were healed and delivered. Herod starts to question. He's hearing rumors and stories of all these things and thinks that John's risen from the dead as a result of this. But then we go on and we see the feeding of the 5,000. Well, that could easily have been anything up to 15,000. It was 5,000 men, plus the women, plus the children. All followed after Jesus to see and. Jesus satisfies that physical need and immediately they want to come and make him king. That's often what happens, you know, where, when people's physical needs are met or even sometimes emotional needs, people will follow after. But Jesus comes to deal with the bigger problem, our spiritual condition. So Jesus walks away from them. And then we see Jesus walking to the disciples and Peter on, on the, the Sea of Galilee. And then we get the second calming of the waves. Chapter 7, we see this daughter freed. Just incredible that the grace of God is extended. The deaf and dumb man healed. Chapter 8, we get the feeding of the 4,000. And then we get this blind man that's healed. This seemingly this double miracle where, first of all, his, his eyesight is restored. But as we said at the time... Naturally, your, your eyes see things and it's an inverted image. Your brain then corrects that uh, after a while. And typically about two weeks, he would have naturally restored to normal. But Jesus then immediately corrects that part as well. So it's, it's double miracles taking place. And then we see in chapter 9, the transfiguration. And then coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, this demonic, demoniac is set free. Jesus highlights that it's all about that relationship with God. You remember we said at the time, prayer and fasting is not about going to God. It's not a hunger strike to get God to do something. It's about being in the right place with God so that when a situation or opportunity occurs, you know exactly how to deal with it because you're in the right relationship. You know exactly what your Heavenly Father would have you do. And that's what Jesus is saying. This kind can come out by nothing but prayer and fasting. If we're to deal with the problems and challenges we face in life, we need to be continually in prayer. And wherever possible, fasting as well. And then, as we saw last week, Bartimaeus. This individual that, although he was blind, is seen more than so many of those around him, recognizing that Jesus was the son of David. 
And that brings us to this chapter, and in a minute we're going to see Jesus curse the, the fig tree. But before we do that, there's another miracle that we need to explore and look at. Because you may have noticed already, we've talked about this a number of times in the past, that Jesus had come to be the king of the nations and the king of Israel. And yet he refused to allow the people to make him king. All the prophecies have said that he was to sit on the throne of David. If you remember, even at the beginning of Luke's gospel, when Gabriel speaks to Mary, the promise is there that he will sit on the throne of his father David. You know, Jesus actually discouraged people from saying who he was throughout his ministry. Yeah, it's probably the worst kind of PR tactic imaginable. You know, you'd think that Jesus would want everybody to know who he was. And here we have Mark telling us who Jesus was and all these miracles. And yet Jesus continually was playing these things down. If you remember, right at the beginning of his ministry, this wedding at Cana in Galilee, when Jesus is there and turns the water to wine. Do you remember what Jesus said at the end of this account? We have Jesus said unto her, to Mary, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. Well, very clearly we can deduce from that that Jesus knew that there was a time coming, a specific point when his hour would come. But he's saying, this is not it. If you remember back in chapter 1 of Mark, when this leper was cleansed, this incredible miracle. And verse 44 says, It said unto him, See thou say nothing to any man. Keep it quiet, Jesus says. I mean, this is so strange, given the, the situation. And Mark 3, again, verse 12, after all those that have been healed, a multitude healed, and those set free from unclean spirits. And he charges the unclean spirits that they should not make him known. Surely you'd think that this is exactly what Jesus wanted people to do, to know who he was. But no. Again, Mark 7, we see the same thing all the way through. These miracles have been taking place, but Jesus hasn't wanted to let people just spread abroad who he was at this point. And Mark, of course, is writing after. So we come then to this point we're now at. And actually, it's John's account that tells us in John 12, Jesus answered them saying, the hour is come that the Son of Man should be glorified. This is exactly the same point in John's gospel as we're looking at in Mark. In Mark 11 and John 12, we have the similar account. It goes on in the gospel of John, it says, now is my soul troubled, but what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? He says, no, but for this cause, I came unto this hour. This is the reason I've come. There was no excuse for anybody not realizing who Jesus was. Mark has made that clear. He's given us enough information, enough eyewitness accounts effectively of all of these things that have led up to this point. But now we come up to this point, the the triumphal entry, this moment that Jesus rides into Jerusalem. If we look at this on a a timeline, and we'll go through this a number of times over the, the coming weeks as we go through this, portion of scripture we've got at this point to the what will be the the saturday sabbath evening and jesus then arrives in in bethany as the sabbath ends they make this short journey from wherever they've been they arrive in bethany they have a meal there 
in the evening. Lazarus was there at the meal with them. And it's the next day on the Sunday, which in their calendar would have been the 10th of the month, 10th of Nisan. That's the day that Jesus then, as we've just seen, they set out for this journey. They go and get this colt and Jesus rides into Jerusalem and they're worshipping Jesus and crying Hosanna and so on. So on this day, this Palm Sunday, for the first time in Jesus' ministry, he allows himself to be worshipped and hailed as the King and the Messiah. And in fact, not only does he allow it, he actually arranges it and encourages it by riding in on a donkey, purposely fulfilling that prophecy in Zechariah. On this one specific day. So the question was, what was special about that day? And why did Jesus, in Luke's account, hold Israel for accounting or for, for accountable for knowing or not knowing what the day was? You see, Jesus throughout, and we see this throughout Mark's gospel and through the other gospel accounts as well, really, but Jesus came to do the will of his Father, to give his life as a ransom for many. We understand that. We have the benefit of hindsight. We have the complete scripture. Jesus didn't want to be made known throughout this incredible three and a half years of ministry until one specific day. But on that day, this Palm Sunday, he intentionally arranges the whole event again to send the disciples and riding into Jerusalem effectively as a king, much to the disdain, as we've said, of the Jewish leadership. In fact, all of Jesus' ministry was centered on this one week. This was what it was all about. So why did Jesus say his hour had now come? Why did Jesus allow himself to be worshipped as the Messiah, the Prince, on this day and only on this day? Why did Jesus rebuke the Jews for not knowing what day this was? In fact, it's so important that Jesus actually pronounces national blindness on Israel. You read about this in Luke 19. Because they did not know the time of their visitation the time that the Messiah had come to them. They missed it. They weren't ready. And Jesus holds them accountable for for being ready. They should have known. Well, to understand this, we have to jump back. That blindness, as I mentioned, has lasted some 1,900 years and it's still got a little way to go. But to understand this, we need to jump back to the book of Daniel. Around about 537 BC, Cyrus has come, conquered Babylon without a fight, as prophesied in Isaiah. It's an incredible situation. I was reading through this last week with Marla. I was just saying, the, the, the story goes that Daniel met Cyrus at the gates of Babylon with a copy of the scroll of Isaiah. You can imagine this old man, Daniel, walking out. And Cyrus, this, this king, has just taken control now of the largest empire in the world at that time. This old man totters out with something in his arms. And Daniel says, you know, Cyrus, I want you to read that. And Cyrus, let's just, let's just take a quick detour because it's just, just too good to miss. Turn to the book of Isaiah. In chapter 45, let's actually let's go to, uh, let's go from verse 24 of chapter 44 of Isaiah. Now, you imagine Cyrus, this, this king, is just taking control of this, this huge empire. And this old man totters out, gives him this scroll, and it reads from verse 24, Thus says the Lord, thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb, I am the Lord that makes all things. 
that stretches forth the heavens alone, that spreads abroad the earth by myself, that frustrates the tokens of the liars and makes his diviners mad, that turneth wise men backward and maketh their knowledge foolish, that confirms the word of his servant and performs the counsel of his messengers, that says to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be inhabited, and to the cities of Judah you shall be built, and I will raise up the decayed places thereof. That says to the deep, Be dry, and I will dry up thy rivers. Now that's how the army of Cyrus had managed to get to Babylon. They'd blocked off the waters, the river water level had come down, they'd gone in under the gates. And verse 28 says, That says to Cyrus, He is my shepherd. Cyrus reading this. And shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord, his anointed to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before me. And I will loose the loins of kings. That had literally happened with Belteshazzar that very evening. That whole passage we have about the writing on the wall and uh, Belteshazzar's loins being loosened. Don't need to go into the details. I think you get the picture. And notice it says to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. And I'll go before thee and make the crooked places straight, and I'll break in pieces the gates of brass and cut us under the bars of iron. And it goes on and it goes on. Cyrus, reading this, and he says, who, who wrote this? And Daniel said, Isaiah. And Cyrus says, well, bring him to me. Let me speak to him. And he says, I can't. He died 150 years ago. Imagine Cyrus's reaction that this was written down, all that Cyrus was accomplishing. Anyway, that's the period of time we're in. And it's this period, and Cyrus now has signed this decree for the Jews to return back to Israel. You can go to the British Museum, you can see the steel of Cyrus. It's there to this day. This declaration that Cyrus was allowing these people to return home. And that's the, the period of history, some just over 500 years before Jesus comes. Now, the 70 years of captivity in Babylon was now over. And around 50,000 Jews returned home. But Daniel is now aged about 83. And he remained in Babylon. He'd been there since he was about 14. And the age of 83, no doubt his heart wanted to return home. But he decides, for whatever reason, that no, he's going to stay now and live out the last few days of his life in Babylon. But in chapter 9 of the book of Daniel... Daniel's confused, and he's praying. See, the captivity was over, but Jerusalem still lay in ruins. See, Daniel turns to the prophecies of Jeremiah and realized that there's a second period of 70 years, a period of judgment that was decreed specifically upon Jerusalem. There's a period of judgment upon the nation, the people, but another period of judgment of 70 years decreed upon the city of Jerusalem. If we look at it on a timeline, the first siege by Nebuchadnezzar in 606 BC triggers that period that Jeremiah refers to as the servitude of the nation, when the nation are taken captive. And that is ended by this decree of Cyrus. But the temple's still not rebuilt. And this is what Daniel's questioning as he's praying in Daniel chapter 9. But there was a third siege. The second siege is when Ezekiel is taken captive. 
The third seizure, 587 BC, is the period of time referred to as the desolations of Jerusalem. This period of 70 years, finally concluded by a decree of Darius the Great. There's a lot of history in here, a lot of really fascinating history. There's a 19-year period between those first and that second decree, the 70-year periods. Obviously, you see the same time frame at the end. Of course, you would. See, then Daniel sets his heart to to pray. It's one of the most impassioned prayers in Scripture. He actually quotes almost verbatim Solomon's prayer in 1 Chronicles 6, 36 to 39. Do you remember that bit when Solomon was dedicating the temple and he was saying, you know, if, if we are taken captive and taken to a different place and we turn our faces to this place and pray? That's, of course, where the Muslims get the idea of facing towards Mecca. It came from this prayer of Solomon. Well, this is all predates by a long way, about a thousand years before um, Islam starts to, to form with uh, Muhammad. But First Chronicles, we have this prayer of Solomon. And, and Daniel now, in obedience, is praying this prayer, recognizing that the people have sinned, that they've been taken away from their land. So he puts his face towards Jerusalem and prays. And does it exactly as this prayer says he should, confessing the sins of his people. That's what he does in the first 15 verses. And then interceding for the city, picking up in verse 16 through to 19 of Daniel chapter 9. But partway through the prayer for Jerusalem, Daniel's interrupted. Not by a, a knock on the door, but by a visitation from the angel Gabriel. We're talking about Gabriel a little bit in our Bible study during the week. And this is what Gabriel tells him. Seventy sevens. We uh, unpack and explain that for you, because that may not mean a lot to you and I in the, the, our own vernacular. But in terms of for, for a Jew, that would have been understood. The, the idea of sevens is used throughout the Old Testament in a number of ways. The word is shaboom. It's literally weeks of years. So we're talking about 70 weeks of years. Okay, so 70 times 7 years. We're talking about 490 years in total. And this isn't a, a strange thing. This is quite common. We find a number of times in the Old Testament these ideas. You, of course, had a week of days, which is seven days. Typically for us, Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. We have that, of course, given us a number of times in Scripture. But you also have a week of weeks, which would be seven weeks. We find that going from the Feast of First Fruits up to Pentecost. We also have a, a week of months, seven months. That's typically the religious calendar. That's what Adrian was sharing with us and talking a little bit about this morning, that we've come to the end of that period of seven months. And then finally you have this week of years as we're looking at here. So Gabriel making it very clear. Daniel, I don't think would have been under any misapprehension as to what was being alluded to. There's a number of reasons why we could be pretty sure that he knew exactly what was being said. Because as an aside, Daniel in the time in Babylon is put in charge of a group of individuals known as the Magi. And Daniel imparts to them the details of this prophecy. And for nearly 500 years, they're waiting until the right time. And at the right time, these magi, they weren't just any old group of people. They, one of their responsibilities was to be king makers. They would be the people that would appoint the next king. 
And so at the right time, at the time that Daniel, from this prophecy, had passed down to them, they make a journey to go and see Herod and ask him, where is he that has been born king of the Jews? Herod wasn't born king of the Jews. He was an Idumean. So you see all of this, just so much intertwining here. But So we've got 490 years determined upon thy people. Who's Daniel's people? Israel. And upon thy holy city, which is Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, and to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Wow, what a prophecy. See, this prophecy again is for Israel and for Jerusalem, it's to finish transgression, it's to make an end of sins reconciliation for iniquity well we can't say that transgression's finished certainly looking around the world it hasn't has it we haven't there's not been an end of sins that says reconciliation for iniquity of course we can clearly state that that has been accomplished through christ on the cross but to bring in everlasting righteousness we're not there yet straight away we don't need to look any further than just simply a bit the deduction tells us that this prophecy hasn't yet been completely fulfilled to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy, either place or the most holy one. Either are applicable. And, and then we go on. And Gabriel says to Daniel, Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem unto the Messiah, the Prince, shall be seven weeks, that's 49 years, seven times seven, 49 years. And three score and two weeks, that's 434 years. And we're told that the street shall be built again and the wall even in troublous times. Well, the command to restore and build Jerusalem is the starting point. And we're told that there's going to be 49 years as a first measure, followed by a further 432 years, and that the streets and the walls of Jerusalem will be rebuilt in troublous times. Well, you've only got to read through the books of Ezra and Nehemiah to see the fulfillment of that. They were very difficult times, but eventually it was rebuilt. And that 483 years, we're told, is going to conclude with the Messiah. Now, a command to restore and build Jerusalem, we know from records from history and we're indebted to the work of Sir Robert Anderson. We've got a book on the back of the coming prince, uh, which is uh, one of the places that you can find this detail. And some people question some of the uh, the working out, but he did a lot of deep study. Uh, and there's various others that have come to the same conclusion looking at the dates. And actually, historically, there's a number of ways you can verify this, that we know that the command to restore and build Jerusalem is actually recorded in the book of Nehemiah, chapter 2. It was the first of Nisan 445 BC. It was the 20th year of Artaxerxes Longimonus. And for us in our calendar, it was the 14th of March 445 BC. Now, <clears throat> this is where in Nehemiah 2, it came to pass in the month of Nisan, the 20th year of Artaxerxes. And without boring you, we know his ascension year from history. You can see you plot the years through. He became king in 465, so the first year that was counted of reign would be the next year. This is the way they numbered the reigns of kings. 
And so the 20th year is 445 BC. So we know the dates. There's a number of ways we can verify this. And we're told that from that point, there was going to be 483 years. Now, let me just remind you, this is God's reputation here. Because is it just approximate, roughly, almost, or is God precise? I suggest to you that God is very precise. In Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, from ancient times, the things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. Now God is precise and he knows everything detail-wise of what is coming and what has been. Now, just as an aside, and you'll see why this is important, Whenever the Bible deals with prophetic years, it works on the basis of 360 days to the year, not 365 and a quarter as we have now. And there's lots of good reasons for that. And if you want to look at that in more detail, I'm more than happy to, to look at that uh, sometime as a separate study because it's fascinating, the, the details behind this. But you can see in Genesis, the, the details about the flood, Again, everything's reckoned on 30-day months. It's 360 days a year. Of course, Daniel 7, we've seen, um, or not seen, but in Daniel 7 and Daniel 12, uh, both this period of time are uh, referred to as 360 days per year. Revelation, we see it in the servitude of the nations, desolation of Jerusalem. Ezekiel uses that, and so on. Also, interestingly, all ancient calendars were based upon 360-day years. I, I believe, and you can... Go dig and research this yourself. I believe the earth used to be on a 360-day orbit. Uh, and it was changed. I believe it was changed in 701 BC. All of those ancient cultures all had, for different reasons, 360 intertwined in what they did. Uh, typically they had um, 360 days in their calendar, but they also had 360 gods that they worshipped, uh, and so on. Everything was based around the 360. Uh, even... This quote from Isaac Newton, he says, All nations before the just length of the solar year was known reckoned months by the course of the moon and years by the return of winter and summer, spring and autumn. And in making calendars for their festivals, they reckoned 30 days to a lunar month and 12 lunar months to a year, taking the nearest round numbers. Whence came the division of the ecliptic into 360 degrees. So Isaac Newton, his perception was that they didn't fully understand it, but what he does say here that's interesting is that the reason we have 360 degrees in a circle was because this belief that there was 360 days in a year. It kind of makes sense if you think about it. Well, let's work on that basis then. Because we've got a period of 483 years, according to this prophecy that Gabriel has given to Daniel. And the numbers very clearly. So if we then work out, we've got 483 years and 360 days per year. So if we do the maths, again, prophetic years always reckon 360 days. We actually get to the period of time, 173,880 days. That's the number. That's how many days precisely. And if you go from the 1st of Nisan, 445 BC, the interval leading up to then the Messiah, the King, is exactly that. And on the 6th of April, AD 32, or the 10th of Nisan in the Jewish calendar, Jesus, on the very day, as prophesied by Daniel, or Gabriel given to Daniel, rides into Jerusalem and declares himself king. This is just one of the ways we know that the Bible is supernatural. It's given to us by God. There is no way man 
could have engineered this. There is no way this could be simply the product of human minds. Because this spans some 500 years. And the very day that the Messiah was to present himself to Israel, he does so. Riding in as Zechariah some 400 years before a prophesied riding in on a donkey. And the other interesting thing here, of course, is that the whole of this period we see a model of the Feast of Passover. Because Jesus goes into Jerusalem on the 10th day. That's the triumphal entry. Today he's kind of taken by that group that are welcoming him as their king. He's taken as a lamb on the 10th day of the first month. That according to what we read in Exodus. Exodus 12 and onwards. That's what they were to do. They were to take a lamb on the 10th day of the first month. The lamb had to be perfect, no blemish. But on the 14th day of the month, they were to kill the lamb. In the text, in, the, in Exodus, it says in. The word actually is bayan. It's a Hebrew word. It means between. Literally, they were to kill the lamb between the evenings. And the blood was to be put on the doorpost and the lintel. And anyone who passed under the blood into those houses would be safe from God's judgment upon the firstborn of the land. Well, if we look at this model, as it were, of Passion Week, we've got at the top there, the 10th, Sunday the 10th, the lamb was taken. Jesus was taken as he entered into Jerusalem. And then on the 14th, is the day that Jesus is crucified between the evenings. And then you also see the other feasts play out because, if we go back, the next day was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was the day following. And then on the Sunday that followed the Sabbath, the high Sabbath being the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, there's two Sabbaths there. There's the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which was the High Sabbath, and then the regular weekly Sabbath. The Sunday that followed that would always be the Feast of First Fruits. And it's on the Feast of First Fruits that fulfilling this model, Jesus rises or raises from the dead, becoming the first fruits of them that have slept. Okay. We could go into lots more. I'm going to stop there this morning. Next week, we're going to pick it up. And we're going to start to look at this day-by-day journey through what we refer to sometimes as Passion Week. Because you'll see Jesus entering into the city, coming out in the evening, going back in the next day. And there's all sorts of things that are very significant that happen through this week. For now, that's probably enough for this morning. Let's bow our hearts and thank the Lord for his word. Shall we, Father? We do thank you. We thank you that you do know the end from the beginning. Thank you, Lord, that you revealed to your servants the things that you are going to do. Thank you that you showed Daniel all those years ago your plan. And that Jesus, the Messiah, would come at the end of that period of time, presenting himself to the nation of Israel. And yes, Lord, we know that Israel didn't see, their eyes were blinded. Oh, but Lord, we thank you this morning as we sit here. We can sit here with eyes that are open. And we can recognize that you really are the Messiah. Of course, the same question that was asked in Caesarea Philippi still applies. Who do we say you are? Well, Lord, I say you are the Messiah. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. There is no other way to the Father but through you. Salvation is only in your name. Because only you are the Savior, slain from the foundation of the world. We thank you, Lord, for these things. 
Lord, just speak through our hearts. Lord, may we be overwhelmed with the details and the design in Scripture, the incredible lens you've gone to to demonstrate your great love for us and, Lord, to bring salvation at such higher cost. We thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, may God richly bless you through this week. We'll pick up from there next week. Uh, Let's uh, spend some time fellowshipping over some teas and coffees.